1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
0: No purchase necessary. DGW Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Hello, everyone. It's you here.
2: And I'm Gabby.
1: And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast, which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis?
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
2: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
3: I'm afraid you have really unleashed the beast here.
0: jenny williamson and i'm jen McMenemy. and this is ancient history fangirl
2: we are so excited to welcome dr fiona radford and dr peter greenfield from the partial historians to the podcast welcome (laughs)
0: thanks Thank you for coming on. Oh, we're
3: so glad to be here.
2: We absolutely adore the Partial Historians podcast. They are brilliant. They are fierce. And if you love Ancient Rome, then you really just need to go listen to them. And when we started this arc, or when I started this arc, because I'm writing this arc, I don't know how that happened. How did that happen?
0: Who let you write an arc? Whose idea was that?
2: (laughs) Why? This is a terrible idea. But anyway, when we started this arc, I was like incredibly excited because when we were just a baby podcast and I was doing all my research on Germanicus and Agrippina, I came across their podcast and I listened to all their episodes on that topic and I also listened to all their episodes on Spartacus because I'm a massive Spartacus nerd and we know that Dr. Radford's thesis was on Stanley Kubrick's classic film Spartacus and I was like, please, will you come on and talk to us all about Spartacus?
3: I'm always glad to talk about Spartacus.
0: You can never have too much
3: Spartacus. (laughs) (laughs) You
0: cannot, in fact, have too much Spartacus. This is a documented fact.
2: So here we go. Join us for a conversation about Spartacus and popular culture. I mean, did you know there's a Spartacus ballet? There's a ballet. And so much more. I have no idea what else we're going to talk about, but it's going to be fun.
0: It's going to surprise us all.
2: (laughs) Exactly. So hi, Dr. Radford. Hi, Dr. Greenfield. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast, The Partial Historians?
3: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I'll let Dr. G go first because she is uh, the fearless leader of our podcast.
1: (laughs) Oh, God, am I? No, this is definitely a (laughs) 50-50. Maybe we'll just tell both of our perspectives and we'll find out whether we actually agree about the history of The Partial Historians.
0: I think somebody asked us this question and we're just like, oh, my God, I have no idea.
2: (laughs) No idea. We made something up.
0: (laughs) We have two different origin
1: stories. Yeah, because I think like back in time, this is like the dark sort of age of like 2013, which is like, or maybe even earlier than that, because I think 2013 is when we started recording, but we must have been talking about it before then. We were getting together over dinner and wine and things like this. And it was just a group of smart women. And we're kind of like, what will we do? We're about to finish our PhDs. The academic job market looks like a piece of terribleness. And I think it's gotten even worse over time. Actually, it's worse now. Than it was then, and we we're like, we love history. How do we keep doing it? And the partial historians is kind of born in that kind of moment. But I'm really interested in Dr. Rad's details as well.
3: Uh, I, I concur that we have a definite origin story over dinner at a. Actually, it was a slumber party at Dr. G's apartment. Oh, fun! Yeah, yeah, and yeah, we we were both just uh, really devastated at the idea that we might not be able to keep doing history because we might not be able to get jobs in academia. And I had jumped onto the podcast bandwagon very early. I still am a massive podcast nerd. I listen to about 350 podcasts at the moment.
0: That sounds about right for me too. <laughs> I'm definitely in that category.
3: Yeah, and so um, I think I suggested that we maybe explore this. This back then it was like 10 podcasts. <laughs> But I suggested that we do something along those lines, and uh, and yeah, it, and this that's how our, our podcast eventuated, and I'm I'm really glad it has done so because it's probably one of my favorite things that I do in my life.
2: Yeah. So I feel like your friendship is really central to your podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you two met?
3: Yeah, I will I will take the lead this time, Doctor G. <laughs> I'm seizing control, Spartacus style. Uh, uh, yeah. Look, we. We did know each other um, on and off through, uh, we both went to Macquarie University and then Dr. G went to Sydney University for a while, but we did keep running into each other in our social circles. And it actually was a, a mutual friend that sort of brought us closer together and hence why we were both at a summer party at the same time. And since then, and since we started podcasting, I think we've become really close friends. I mean, I, w- I would say that Dr. G is probably the person I speak to on a regular basis most often, and yeah, she's just become such a crucial part of my life, and and I think doing this podcast has has really brought us much closer together. You know, we travel together now. We you know we see each other all the time because we're talking about podcast business, and and yeah, it's it's been a really enriching thing for for my personal life. But I think it definitely does bring a certain warmth. I hope to the podcast. That's what I hope.
1: I'm having lots of feelings now because I don't think we really... We don't talk about what our friendship means to each other. We just do it. What an excellent question, guys. I feel like our friendship has really deepened through the process. Obviously, doing the podcast has been one of the ways that we've gotten to know each other on a more intimate level. And I think we obviously would never have thought to start it if we didn't think that we'd get along while we did it. But actually, the things that I've learned about Fiona and the way that she lives her life and the values that that she holds dear, she's a massively special person to me, not just because of the podcast, but just because of the standards that she upholds for herself and and that she holds for the world. And it's like, I have so much deep admiration for her. And it makes it a pleasure to to sit down and have a chat and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about history and we just record those conversations or whether it's something else that we don't put on the record. It's become something that is that is both deep and nourishing and yeah I don't know what I'd do without her at this point. I mean I certainly wouldn't have a podcast.
0: If you really want to get to know somebody, don't marry them necessarily. Start a podcast with them because Jen and I live in each other's pockets now, <laughs> you
3: know? Yeah. <laughs> we were pretty close before but <laughs> no i know i definitely think like dr g is my other better half
0: we have both listened to a lot of your podcast and what's your favorite topic that you've covered so far
1: Ooh, all right i'll go first Ooh. yes yes it's an uprising within an uprising that's right you weren't <laughs> expecting it <laughs> taking it back
0: this is so on topic right now i'm loving it the whole dynamic <laughs>
1: Just you wait till we get to Spartacus. Thinking about um, favorite topics. For me, it's always stuff to do with women in the ancient world. I can't help myself. I'm way too feminist. I don't think that's a bad thing. And I'm going to continue down that path.
0: Absolutely nothing wrong with that.
1: We approve. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'm really looking forward for the part of our podcast where we come back into the early empire because we've touched on a number of really key female figures really early on in our recording when we were still quite new and working out how we sounded and stuff like that. And I'm super fascinated to see how those treatments will look when we get to them again um, and what will have changed and what we will have learned. And there's plenty of women to come and so every time we've got the opportunity we make sure that we bump them up in there because uh, the ancient historians tend to leave them out
2: it really is one of those things that I didn't understand in our first few episodes because we were really excited about the topics we were covering but um I remember when we did the ancient world stark family and that was like my first arc in my first big episodes and I wrote the first episode and it was fine and I wrote the second episode which is all about Caligula and I wanted to really focus on like him and his relationship to his sisters and I went through all the ancient sources i went through modern historians and jenny just looked at me and she's like so you just wrote another caligula episode like you haven't really focused on the sisters or what it was like to be a woman at this point in time you're gonna have to go back and like fix it
0: uh, <laughs> like the way that we do it is like whoever writes the episode, the other one is the editor-in-chief of the episode.
2: But it was one of those things where I hadn't even realized I'd done it because so many of the stories that you're being told, especially from the ancient sources, are from a male lens. So I had to cast my net a lot wider to get the different perspective.
3: What Dr. G is looking forward to is probably years away in our narrative. <laughs> We'll be 50! We're still in the very early Republic and so I'm really looking forward to just women, just women of any kind popping up in our narrative again. But I must admit, I, I really enjoy the episodes where we talk about vessels because Dr. G is an expert on vessels and it's, I, I never really focused on religion or anything like that in my research, which is weird because it's so important in the ancient world uh, and to the ancient Romans. So, I find that no matter how many times we talk about vessels, I always learn something new. And it really is so interesting to look at the the female experience in in the ancient world. And and the vessels are just such a fascinating case study. So I, I love talking about the vessels with Dr. G.
2: I'm just going to like go off the cuff and be like, so what's your favorite thing about the Vestals that you learned that you didn't know before?
3: I think actually, although I didn't actually realize how many qualifications they had to have in order to be a Vestal, I knew that there was like an age range that they were chosen from. What was the age range? Oh God, now this is, this is testing how much I have learned. I'm pretty sure it's between the ages of six and
1: 10 or 12 <laughs> And looking at Dr. i I'm like,
0: mm. So
1: close, so close. Six and ten. Damn!
0: <laughs> We're just going to have you guys talk about each other's expertise area.
1: <laughs> we'll test each other, yeah. I'll fail miserably with Spartacus.
3: But yeah, I didn't realize that they had to have, you know, both parents living, that they had to be physically intact as in, like, no physical handicaps I didn't actually realize there were a number of levels they had to qualify on so that's just one random fact that I'm pulling out of my brain
1: <laughs> not bad I'll give you a credit on that essay yeah sure <laughs> <Two points. laughs> when we talk about like things that we're looking forward to and weirdly perhaps I said vestals so <laughs> uh, there should be no surprises there I suppose for me it's like what is going on with women? And I'm still trying to figure that out. I feel like that's my like lifelong mission with ancient history. And it's like, what is going on with women in the ancient Roman world? And I'm just really curious about the concept of virginity in the first place. We know it's a construct, but it has all of these repercussions as soon as you decide that it has social currency. So really interested to see how the whole thing operates between like sort of like the late Republic where everyone's like, we kind of know what we're doing, but everybody's got a bit of a free for all until we get into like the early empire and everyone's like, you know what? Let's lock this down. This is going to be completely different. And then we get to Domitian and he starts burying Vestals all over again. So that's a sad, sad story. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that took a dark turn. I, I think that was his bro
1: move, really. He was like, nobody's done this for like a century.
0: It's one of those nostalgia moves. Bring it back. Bring
1: it back. You know what I'm in the mood for, guys? Live burial.
2: Yeah, that's okay. it's like when you were telling me about that prison. That's just a horrible hole where you get strangled in. I was like, I don't understand the prison.
0: Oh, the Mamertine prison. It's just—it's literally a hole in the ground that you
2: have to be lowered into, and then somehow someone strangles you.
0: No, the strangler gets lowered in with you,
2: and then pulled back
3: out.
0: How? You're already in there. Oh,
3: is that prison?
0: <laughs> Isn't that
3: just execution? <laughs>
0: Okay, so I'm gonna, like, preface this by saying that I haven't been there, and you can go visit it still. It's still there. I've seen pictures online. What I can tell of the Mamertine prison, and there might be people online who will tell me that I'm totally wrong, but from what I understand, it used to be like a reservoir with some water in it, and then... They drained it and used it as a prison. So there's two floors of it, basically. There's the horrible hole, and then there's a room on top of the horrible hole. They didn't, like, keep people in prison for a long time down there, unless you were Vercingetorix, in which case you were stuck in there for six years. But it was a place to keep you until they decided, what, they were going to do with you like the Catalan conspirators were kept down there and then strangled by the executioners you would be basically garroted and that was the method of execution it was it's usually described as a ritual strangling and so that's the story of the Mamertine prison but like what if you overpower the strangler can you then go up do they just leave the strangler down there there's a rope or <laughs> Maybe a rope ladder, or a, I don't know.
1: There's got to be a harness, surely.
0: Like a pole that you slide down. Like a fireman's pole.
1: But if you can shimmy down, you can shimmy up. Uh-oh. That's what I'm
3: thinking. Yeah. It's your a workout for the day.
0: You have to go down and then go back up. It's very important, the thigh strength.
3: My cat is trying to join us, as you might be able to see. <laughs> He's chewing on my microphone. Step
2: into the world of power, loyalty.
3: Okay, yeah, so Spartacus. So, uh, what would you like to know about Spartacus? Do you want me to give you a rundown of uh, who he was? Oh,
2: please. Let's have a rundown of who he was, of the story, and then let's talk about what it's been adapted into and uh, why we think the Spartacus story is still here
0: today. Jen and I are both major fans of the Star series, and the other day we watched the entirety of the 1960 MGM Kirk Douglas film. yeah. That was special. That was really special. (laughs) We're quarantining (laughs) with
2: Spartacus.
1: You're doing quarantine properly.
2: I mean, there was definitely wine.
3: (laughs) So who Spartacus was. All right. So there are a number of different stories about where he came from, which is part of uh, the thing that makes him so mysterious in that very sexy, masculine way. There's a a reasonable amount of consensus that for some reason he ends up in a gladiatorial school in Capua owned by a man named Lentulus Spatiatus. And he, for some reason, decides, again, there are multiple accounts about why he decides, that he doesn't want to stay there anymore. And so he organizes the other slaves and gladiators in that gladiatorial school to break out in a daring escapade in around 73 BC. And they actually experience a reasonable amount of success. They actually face some of Rome's premier forces. Uh, they face you know, consuls and proconsuls before finally, as you might expect, unfortunately, it all comes to a screeching halt when the slaves are defeated in a, in a battle against Crassus. And they end up being massacred on the battlefield, and if they manage to survive that slaughter... They might be lucky enough to find themselves crucified up and down the Appian Way. That's a happy one for dark times. It's one of those uplifting stories. It shows you that it could be worse. No matter where you are, it could be worse.
0: You could be on the Appian Way on a cross, but you're not. At least I hope you're not.
3: It seems unlikely.
0: (laughs) Chances
2: are low. So... Let's talk about adaptations. Is there any adaptation that you've both seen that seems particularly true to the history?
3: Ah, well, I think Dr. G has probably seen a lot more Spartacus than she ever wanted to in her life.
1: (laughs) It's not that I dislike Spartacus. I'm quite into Spartacus, but I I certainly have been exposed to more Spartacus over time, which uh, I think has been a real pleasure, to be honest. I don't know whether I'm the best person to speak to the historicity of any of the interpretations that we've looked at. I pulled out some primary sources this morning, which is the first time I've looked at any Spartacus evidence in a long time. And I did not do my thesis on Spartacus, so I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. So I will defer to the expertise of Dr. Ad here. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. To be honest, I think the problem with Spartacus, and this
3: probably answers a question about why he's so appealing is that he's a bit of a blank slate we do know obviously the bare details of his existence as far as he impacts the romans you know we know that that a man named Spartacus did exist but we can't even be sure if that was actually his name or that whether that was a name he was given when he started to fight as a gladiator we have number of stories of who he was before then, and we don't—we can't even say for sure what happened to him. We're not 100% sure. I mean, it seems likely that he was killed on the battlefield, um, and that's what the sources attest to.
1: It's a bit like Elvis, though. We don't know if he's really dead.
0: He could still be around. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Burden of proof. Every once in a while, well, he just pops up and does
2: something. <laughs> that's right. He could show up at the next bar. Yeah, he's with Immortal Ajax and his golden tusks. Exactly. <laughs>
3: Yeah. And, and so for that reason, I don't know that I could say that I've ever seen a, an adaptation that I'm like, yes, you are on point with your facts because you can kind of twist him to fit a number of different stories. And it just depends on which source tradition you're relying on as to whether you think it's you know really accurate or not. I like the idea of the style Spartacus, not that I'm saying that's like the most accurate thing I've ever seen, but being a TV series, the advantage is that you can work so many more elements into the story, and so they manage to meld together a whole bunch of different source material into one narrative. They have more time, so they can they can include a little bit more of the nuance. But I don't know that nuance is generally a word you would associate with the Star but
1: <laughs> no, maybe not necessarily.
2: I think I think. Abs
0: is really what you <laughs> associate with that. Lots of abs. So many abs.
1: Yeah, beautiful abs.
0: Not subtle either about the abs. No.
3: When you peel away the abs and the sex and the buckets of blood, there is actually a reasonable amount of different storylines that's been worked into it, which I think in a movie or something like that would be really hard to do.
1: If I jump in here and I say to you, Dr. Rad, that Sullust is one of our like close primary sources. And then it seems like every other literary tradition springs out of an interpretation of that in Livy in some way what would you
3: definitely Sallust has obviously an impact uh, but he's so fragmentary that it's so hard to say for sure who's following which source tradition but I think Sallust definitely kicks off this interesting duality to Spartacus in that In the early stages, not too long after the revolt, when I say not too long, I'm speaking in ancient historian terms, so I mean in like a couple of hundred years. Over the first couple of hundred years, there's a kind of positive source tradition about Spartacus and a negative one. And when I say positive, I'm not saying that they're all like, oh my God, he's so amazing. We love the fact that he rebelled against his masters. But they do have a certain admiration for him, and that seems to come from Sallust. Whereas there are other source traditions that are relentlessly negative from the get-go, and they're the ones that win out in the Roman source material that we have that survives. The negative source tradition about Spartacus is what
1: survives. We get like this reference from Cicero in the Philippics where he compares Antony to Spartacus.
0: Really? (laughs) And in a negative way, right?
1: Oh, this is very negative. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, that sounds right.
1: (laughs) He compares Antony with a killer, with a bandit, with Spartacus. So it's one of like these tricolon sort of crescendo rhetorical moments where Spartacus is the worst in that list.
0: The worst of the worst. Yeah.
1: Setting a fire on his whole reputation.
2: I mean, as if Antony needed that much help, but... (laughs) (laughs) barfing
0: in the Senate House.
2: (laughs) What I found interesting is, like, I was looking into most of the Spartacus history, and I I was a bit overwhelmed with it. So Jenny handled the first two Servile Wars, and we were looking at sort of the narrative that, is it Appian who did the first two Servile
3: Wars, or am I wrong on that?
0: So is Diodorus.
3: Yeah, Diodorus has a lot of information, yeah.
0: Yeah,
2: but if you look at the stories, like, you see in both those two wars, they kind of mirror a lot of stuff that we then see in the Spartacus War, like the kitchen implements, Kitchen implements, that was a thing. And also like the connection to Dionysus. Do you think there's any accuracy or is that sort of just like the ancient sources trying to like mix all the revolts together or?
3: I'm going to be really annoying and be a usual ancient historian that I'll say it could be either. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Um, definitely when you look at Spartacus, there is a theory which I kind of like, which is that his story has been very much shaped by a particular trope of the bandit. And so his story is made to resemble previous stories about bandits. You know, like, like you see with lots of characters, like how maybe Nero is the stock tyrant and maybe Agrippina is like this stereotypical dominating woman. Like there is a certain level of that always going on in the ancient sources. And it's so hard to say how much of this is the, the truth and how much of this is actually what happened. But definitely with Spartacus, I can see a a genuine connection to Dionysus because personally, I do believe that he was probably from Thrace. I'm with you. He was definitely from Thrace. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. (laughs) To right now. Um,
0: Big (laughs) energy.
3: Yeah. And so I do believe that there's a a Dionysus connection potentially coming through from there. It kind of just makes sense with Spartacus, given what we know about his backstory. And it would make sense for the previous slave revolts in that slaves obviously come from all over. And so they're going to bring all sorts of different cultural and religious and social things to mixes like this. So I see no reason to disbelieve it.
2: Jenny, was it Eunice who is the priest of Dionysus and also a fire breather.
0: No, Eunice was the priest of Adar Goddess and Salvius was the priest or flute monster of Dionysus. He was the second survival war. Eunice was the first survival war. I
2: was like, I know one breathed fire. Like, literally, I recorded these episodes and forgot.
0: No, Eunice was the fire breather and also the mermaid goddess. So, (laughs) we've
2: already sort of touched on the fact that we don't think there are any truly sort of accurate adaptations because the ancient sources have told us lots of things and they could all be true or they could not be true. Are there any, like, really weird weird, out-there adaptations that really surprised you.
3: Definitely. There's a great one from the 18th century by Sorin. Ooh. Yeah, French one, where Spartacus starts fighting to avenge the crimes against his mother which is a new twist.
2: Wow. (laughs) Was it like an honor was at stake kind
3: of thing? Well, she was, you know, as the Romans do, they treated her terribly, brutalized her, etc. And he ends up falling in love with the daughter of Crassus. That's new. And, you know, so it's very Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. And then, then the best part is that Crassus offers to give all the slaves citizenship and make Spartacus a senator if he just stops rebelling. (laughs) oh wow and the the best part is the best part is he says no (laughs) he's just gonna die on that hill
2: (laughs) it's just like you know what kill them all
3: it ends sadly it ends really sadly so yeah that was that was always an interesting one and then putting a, a twist on it, flipping it, one of the earliest films from 1913, an Italian film about Spartacus, directed by Giovanni Vidali. He again falls for Crassus's daughter. In this case, her name is Nerona. He rebels because Crassus refuses to allow them to marry. I don't know what he was expecting. I did you think that was going to work? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a lot of hope for Spartacus in that one because he's clearly an
0: idiot.
3: (laughs) I don't know what he was thinking, but that one is unique in that they actually end up getting together and living happily ever after.
0: They never found his body, so, you know, maybe.
3: Maybe, yeah. But no, I think it's more of a a reconciliation story. But that's partially because that was kind of trying to give Spartacus some Garibaldi and Italian... Reunification vibe. It was. It was just all about bringing everyone together. I think
0: <laughs> that's a really different twist. It's so interesting that there is this sort of you know category of Spartacus storytelling where Crassus's daughter is the love interest.
3: It, it actually happens a lot. More than you might think. Wow. <laughs>
1: Maybe he was a very good gladiator. And it's like a famous sportsman, you know, the daughter of a senator. It could be good.
0: Did Krauses have any daughters? That was my other question. I don't think so, but I could be wrong on that. He had a son. Does he need to have them in reality? I mean, come on, like which have- <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Historical accuracy, optional.
1: <laughs> Crossing enemy lines in more ways than one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have got to know what drew you to make Spartacus your thesis. What is it about this story that just is so appealing.
3: Um, I think there's a number of elements, and look, I am obviously speaking from my own point of view, and I'll see if what Dr. G thinks, and see if I'm, I'm on the money or whether I'm just totally speaking out of my my own perspective.
1: I'm not going to disagree with your thesis choice. Oh God,
3: <laughs> no, 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 no. But like, why I think he's why I think he's generally appealing. You know, I think definitely the main thing is that. If you look at the story very broadly, it's a little guy standing up to the big dominating power in the world, the underdog element to the Spartacus story is always appealing but then on top of that thanks to Plutarch thank you Plutarch I'm saluting you you can't see me because this is a podcast but I am he added the element of Spartacus having a wife and not just a wife that he met in the gladiator school but apparently again this is one of the most bizarre elements apparently they were married and they somehow managed to stay together whilst being made into slaves and being sold to a gladiator school that romantic element makes his story so good for anyone who wants to make an adaptation because you can always have that romantic element and Pretty much every single version of Spartacus I've ever seen has a love story element to it. And then on top of that, he's a gladiator. We are endlessly fascinated by gladiators. It's one of those aspects of Roman
1: culture that we're just like,
0: what? (laughs) It's a sexy job, you know?
1: Yep. (laughs) I think you're on the money with a lot of this stuff. It seems pretty clear from like the way that the Spartacus story gets adapted for different audiences as soon as they become aware of it. He's malleable enough and indistinct enough that they can place kind of whatever they need to onto him in order to create the story that they want. So as soon as we get Plutarch translated into the vernacular, like his story just takes off. And so you've got like the Enlightenment period and then the Proto-Romantics and they pull Spartacus in different directions for different purposes. And then you hit Karl Marx and then it's all just straight into the 20th century. His reputation is made. (laughs) Yeah, you know as soon as you've got Voltaire on board as soon as you've got Marx, you've got References to Garibaldi. It's like this guy is your go to if you've got like an individual who's trying to stand up for something in the face of like what seems like insurmountable odds. So that underdog feature just becomes like a real key.
0: Yeah. I have two thoughts here. Um, One of them is about Spartacus's wife, because that is a big part of the narrative arc that we're building here. And I didn't realize that the source material is Plutarch for that. John, I'm sure you know this. I did not. Oh, Plutarch. (laughs) Plutarch. He's one of the later sources. Am I right or am I wrong about that?
3: Yeah, no, he's not particularly early if we're talking in the way that we might conceive of time. So he's a couple of hundred years after, but he's still considered to be one of the major sources because he survives. (laughs) Like there's actually like enough of his story about Spartacus to piece together what the hell he's talking about. Whereas Some of the earlier sources, like Stalus, as I was saying earlier, they're just so fragmentary, it's really hard to make heads or tails of it. So Plutarch, whilst he's writing a couple of hundred years later, he and Appian, who are writing around the same time, they're often the major sources that people are using, whether they realise it or not, um, because they might be going through, you know, a a secondary historian or something, just because their, their narrative survives in enough detail to tell us exactly the version of Spartacus they want to and the version of the revolt that they want to.
0: Yeah, and I just, I'm so fascinated by this because there are, as you mentioned, like certain sort of fantastical elements of the Thracian lady who is Spartacus's wife. And one of them is that she was taken as a slave with Spartacus and they somehow stayed together and how likely would that have been? And then she fights alongside him in the revolution, right? In addition to being kind of his spin doctor.
3: Well, that's kind of something that tends to come up in adaptations rather than anything we can verify. The only thing we get from Plutarch are really like, Two details about her. One is that, as as you said, she's sold into into slavery and ends up in the gladiatorial school with Spartacus. And number two, that she has some connection to the cult of Dionysus. And in connection with that, that fact seems to only be brought up because she apparently had some sort of interpretation in that while Spartacus was sleeping, there was a snake crawling around his face and she apparently made some sort of prediction about what this meant for his future. That's really the only detail we get about her. But the fact that they stay together, I think, is what people latch on to. And so they often turn it into this huge story where she fights alongside him as his, you know, valiant queen of the rebels and that kind of stuff. But we have no evidence about her beyond that.
0: I was definitely just interested in like whether or not the, the Thracian lady was like, you know, Plutarch's romantic vision and he was the first one. I, and there's no way to tell, right?
1: <laughs> and the thing is that like Plutarch and Appian are both going to be reading source material that was written closer to the time period in question. So it's like for both of them to be considered to be viable historians and to have survived, people must have thought their accounts were relatively good. Um, so like what was their source material as well. So those things are a little bit elastic, um, but we have to assume that they're doing an okay job. I think it kind of
2: all depends on the different like tribes and people as to what the women would have been doing involved in the fighting. She might've had martial experience. She might not have had any martial experience. The Thracian culture was kind of like the dramatic culture where The women like would go to the battlegrounds with their husbands and they would like shout them on because like the idea was like, this is what you're losing. But we also know that like the Thracian cultures were like sort of in between the Gallic cultures and the Scythian cultures. And so some of them might have more experience. We don't really know exactly what Spartacus's army looked
3: like. It's so hard to tell any details about her. We don't even know her name. The only thing we get is, um, you're quite right to say, that there would have been women as a part of this rebel army. Whether they fought or what they were doing is a little bit open for speculation. We really don't know for sure. But in some of the source material, we do get reference to them. So, for example... We're told that towards the end of the rebellion, one of the surprise attacks that the Romans are trying to launch against them is spotted by some women who had isolated themselves from the rest of the group because they were menstruating. And they spotted the attack coming and were able to warn the rest of the slave army, hey, look over there
0: interesting
3: that's so interesting from a number of levels because it shows how they're practicing certain cultural things even in the midst of this rebellion
2: so sticking with the spartacus story can you share with us a little known fact that most people don't know about the story
3: Ooh, well, I think I've actually probably already let it go because <laughs> I was going to say for this question the fact that there are these conflicting interpretations of Spartacus that exist in the source material, that there is this more sort of admiring way of looking at him in the Roman sources because you think you think he's the enemy. So of course, he's terrible. and on top of that he's a slave and a gladiator double terrible you know there's no coming back from that but yeah definitely in sources like Sallust and Plutarch we actually do get this sense of Spartacus as being someone that they have some admiration for and not just because he does well militarily but they seem to actually have some respect for his intelligence the way that he conducts himself in some way it's a little hazy but then again and again I'm going to do the ancient historian thing of questioning myself endlessly Spartacus comes up in Plutarch's account of the life of Crassus. So he's really telling the story of Spartacus because he needs something to fill out this biography of Marcus Licinius Crassus, who is a big deal, big deal in the Republic. And so it's only because of Crassus that Spartacus is mentioned, and it's possible that Plutarch is basically making Spartacus out to be a more impressive character, to try and show up the negative aspects of Crassus's character, because Plutarch is not a Crassus fan, and so it could be that Spartacus is, is kind of a device through which he can highlight all the unfortunate aspects of Crassus. And it doesn't matter if it's if it's you know a little off the grid in terms of his interpretation, because who cares about Spartacus? What we care about is the Roman. We care about what his character is like, and therefore we can twist Spartacus a little bit. So it's possible that Plutarch was doing what we now do with Spartacus, which is kind of adapting him a little bit to suit his own purposes and illustrate the aspects of the story that he wants us to pay attention to.
0: How has his story changed? And I remember we were kind of going through different time periods like Marxism and like the 1800s and different time periods like when we're telling the story what does it tell about ourselves in our time period
3: I definitely think that because Spartacus is a bit of a blank site he also becomes a bit of a mirror <laughs> in that we do tend to project a lot onto him and, and it's partially just because if you're going to tell a story then you need to fill in the gaps you need to have an arc happening in a story, particularly if it's for entertainment purposes, like a
0: play or a film or something. You're appealing to an audience, so it has to appeal.
3: Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, Spartacus does end up becoming a really interesting way of talking about present-day concerns, not just the past. So that play I told you about where Crassus made that very generous offer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So generous. Spartacus gets to be a senator. I mean, it is actually really generous. (laughs)
3: It's very generous.
0: I'm just like, wait, isn't this what you're fighting for? I mean, this coming from
3: a guy who apparently, you know, used to build his wealth by watching people's houses burn down and offering to buy them and then then put the fire out. Didn't know he could be so charitable.
0: He was starting those fires. That's our theory. (laughs) (laughs) I really want to talk about like how the Marxist Spartacus is different from like modern day like Starz series Spartacus. Like what does that tell us about us?
1: I can help. I can help. I've got some details. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wait for it. I mean, this is the thing I was looking at, uh, I was doing reading about was like receptions of Spartacus over time. So I'm sure Dr. Rad will jump in when I inevitably get it incredibly wrong. Um, but he kind of like he bursts into prominence in the Enlightenment. And so I'll, I'll build up to Marx. But I want to take you through just uh, some little snippets of things that I really quite enjoyed as I was doing this reading. And one of them is that he becomes like the symbol for social change, which is pretty typical, he becomes connected with the French Revolution, becomes connected with the whole Enlightenment movement as well. But then I came across Adam of Weishaupt. This guy, this guy was great. Uh, I think Dr. Rad will like this. You've probably come across him as well. But he is a philosopher, German philosopher, living in Bavaria. He is a professor of civil law, and then he becomes a professor of canon law. And then he gets antsy at religion big time. And he becomes the founder of the Order of the Illuminati. It always comes back to the Illuminati. the important detail here is that he adopts a new name as the founder of the Order of the Illuminati, and that name is Brother Spartacus.
0: (laughs) No! No! That was an unexpected twist. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had popcorn and was like, tell me more. (laughs) What was it about Spartacus that made him adopt Spartacus?
1: Nobody has any idea, as far as I can tell. And I feel like this is a rich vein for additional research. Because
0: we're talking about the Illuminati,
2: if people don't know what that is. That's the secret order that is supposed to be behind wealthy people and privileged people who are just ruling the world. So the idea that like he founds this and then is like, I'm going to be Brother Spartacus. Like, it's like, I think you are Crassus, really.
1: <laughs> I am your founder, Brother Spartacus. I think the way that we think of like the Illuminati and popular thing is very different from the way the Enlightenment thought about illumination, which was kind of like reason and rationality and somehow uh, casting the light of reason over superstition and dispelling all kinds of prejudices. But it was a very strict order. He had a very, as a German philosopher, this is possibly no surprise. He had some very strict rules about how it operated, what you could know, what you couldn't know. And it did operate as sort of like a secret enclave and it got outlawed. Um, So eventually he had to leave Bavaria and leave his university posting and run away because it wasn't going so well.
0: Everything took a downhill turn. Interesting.
1: In about five years, you know, I mean, it didn't take long. Bavaria like smacked him down and was like, we're not having this. And he was like, oh, no, my philosophy. Brother Spartacus, we must run.
0: I mean, with that name, you're sort of asking for it. Kind of are. (laughs) Kind of,
1: yeah. You're setting yourself up as a real rebel.
0: Exactly. What are you gonna be treated like a rebel? It doesn't always go so hot. Did he have any like really out there rules that we know about or no?
1: We know that there was there seemed to be like a, a sort of a really secret structure to the whole thing. So the idea was that people who were just a newly initiated didn't know who their superiors were, so there was a lot of secret clandestine sort of meetings. I haven't read further into the philosophy because I thought that might be a devastating Uh, procrastination, but I've got weeks ahead of me for that, so I'll get back to it, don't you worry. And I think the other big example of like Spartacus being parlayed into something really quite important is the Haitian Revolution.
0: Oh really? Tell me all about it. (laughs) Well
1: obviously, obviously this is a massive revolutionary moment historically, and to have a new Haiti governed by an ex-slave and to have this revolution be led by Toussaint Lutreve, who sort of takes on this name and identity, he's often identified as the Black Spartacus um, by contemporaries. So bringing a sense of like the real world Spartacus into play is like we've now got somebody who's doing similar things, breaking chains, setting people free. It's a successful slave revolt.
0: It's the only one that we know about, right? Where where it was actually like a successful slave revolt. I'm very interested in this too, and I did not know that um, he was called the Black Spartacus.
3: It's a name that gets bandied about in a lot of different ways. You know, I mean, for the 20th century, probably the most significant adaptation of Spartacus is that when Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht decide to call their attempted uprising against the German government the Spartacist rebellion or like the Spartacus Fund, it's because of that that people like Howard Fast turn to Spartacus later on and and, ma- and then eventually you get the 1960 movie and that kind of thing. So people tend to like to take Spartacus's name when they're rebelling against authority or something like that.
0: I thought it was so interesting when I was listening to your episodes on Spartacus and specifically the Spartacus movie, like the 1960 movie, how you noticed the way that the women were portrayed and the way his love interest Varinia was portrayed and the fact that the original script had a wife who was kind of more martial and fought with him and played like that kind of role in the rebellion and then they kind of changed it so that she was very domestic and you definitely have the scene where she's taking care of the babies in the camp and kind of being I don't know maybe the stereotypical 50s housewife I don't know if that's what was going on there but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that from like a feminist angle
3: I call her Stepford Verinia
0: right I remember
3: (laughs) (laughs) she totally is I'm afraid you have really unleashed the beast here because it's a long story This is what I focused on in my thesis, looking at the women in particular. So essentially, the, the 1960 film that stars Kirk Douglas, who just recently passed away, it was based on a novel by a guy called Howard Fast. Howard Fast was a member of the Communist Party during the, you know, the 1930s and 1940s and into some of the 1950s. And the way that he wrote the slave revolt was basically the slaves were meant to be this sort of proto-communist utopia the society that they set up for themselves and one of the things that they do in his novel is they kind of set up a an artwork a sculpture a statue there's three male figures representing the different ethnicities that are mostly involved in the revolt so they have you know the Thracian Mm -hmm. and whatever and then they also set up one that is a woman And I think that that's from those sorts of things that you get this initial script draft when they set about making this into a movie where you do get a female character who's quite heavily involved and is kind of the mother of the rebellion, you know, to Spartacus's father of the rebellion and that sort of feeling. But the key problem, which I think dogged this movie, was that they were competing to get it out against another film about Spartacus based on a different novel by another communist. And so in racing to get the project out before the other film project, they really did focus a lot of their attention onto the Roman side of the script because they needed to lock down the actors they wanted to play the Roman characters. So that would be people like Crassus, people like Gracchus, people like Batiatus, they wanted to lock them down, they wanted to interest them, so they made sure they had a really solid, you know, a fairly solid script for that part of the story. Kirk Douglas they didn't need to worry about because they knew he was locked down, obviously, you know. Um, and so when it came to the script evolving, the slave side really is a bit sloppy and it, it changes a lot throughout the production. And at one point they seem to have kind of forgotten about the women because they're so fixated on Spartacus as a character and how he's become this huge problem because they can't decide what to do with him and how he should be. And and there's these real conflicting versions over what Spartacus could be. And as a result of that, I think it kind of had a knock-on effect to other slave characters in that they end up getting either cut out or cut down or changed completely it's all very confusing but essentially the only reason why you really see those scenes of Varinia like bathing the children and laughing as they're being adorably bratty is because they insisted some of the people involved like Dalton Trumbo insisted on there being some reshoots where women were much more featured because he was like, he was like, where are the women? Where have they all gone? Like, this is insane. And so that's why in the scenes where, you know, panning over the, the dead and, you know, the slave camp, you do see these, these shots with more women involved. Um, that was their attempt to sort of, bring them back
0: well from a narrative perspective it's so important to show what it is Spartacus is really fighting for there which is like it's not just the high ideals it's like you know a chance at really having a family and a life
3: that's kind of what the debate was about actually they had these different versions of Spartacus and one version was that Spartacus is fighting for something larger than himself he's fighting for ideals he's fighting for freedom and and, you know against slavery as a concept he's fighting against the empire Whereas the other version of Spartacus was much more, I'm fighting for my freedom. I'm fighting for my wife. I'm fighting for my child. And hey, if you guys want to tag along, I guess that's okay. But it's kind of a lot of responsibility, and I didn't really want it. So
0: Yeah, so interesting. I remember you putting it on your podcast as the small Spartacus versus the large Spartacus, right?
3: Yeah, I should say that's not my invention. <laughs> that's how Dalton Trumbo put it when he was... Basically, Dalton Trumber, who was the the main screenwriter on Spartacus, when he saw the rough cut, so the first cobbled together version of the film, he was horrified. He was absolutely sickened by the version that he saw. And he went home and wrote this 80 page reflection on what he had seen, basically saying that they needed to, you know, to do something about it and fix it. And he said, I identify one of the big problems, the fact being that we've got two versions of Spartacus in the one story, and therefore the story doesn't make sense. And he identified it as the large Spartacus and the small Spartacus.
0: And how does that compare with the star story? Because I feel like maybe the star story is more small Spartacus. Am I right on
3: that? I mean, it's such a good question. I, I feel like personally, and this is what I mean when I said earlier, that the TV show can incorporate so many more elements. I think you actually have an element of both, but it makes more sense because you can see Spartacus really evolving through time, you know, where he might have initially been fighting for something, but he actually has the time in the story to then think about bigger picture and, and then think about something on a, on a broader scale. But I'm keen to hear what Dr. G thinks about this because we, uh, we did watch all Spartacus series together as well.
1: We did, we did. And what a joy as well. Um, I feel like, yeah, with the Star series, we're definitely going from a small Spartacus to ultimately a large Spartacus. And that's sort of a transformation that takes place. And the Starz series, I think, is interesting in a number of ways. I mean, the transition of the protagonist after the death of Andy Whitfield after the first season, you kind of like, does this even hold together? And so, like, there has to, I think the change in casting also creates a space to adapt what the character might also be about the look and feel changes a little bit because it has to. And we also can see that as we get further into that series, bigger Roman figures from history start to come into play as well. Like as that season progresses and the characters around the peripheral of Spartacus as well get bigger and bigger, I think his ability to transcend small Spartacus for large Spartacus becomes pretty clear but but things get more hectic towards the end I think as well
2: I also think it's really interesting because they're so far apart in when the adaptations were made so like in the more recent stars one it does start out as like very small Spartacus becoming the journey of big Spartacus it kind of like you can see that in how things were happening in our more recent history whereas you can see back in the Kubrick version that it kind of needed to be Big Spartacus a lot earlier, not just because it was a film, but because of the shift that the culture was going through and would eventually go through throughout the course of the 60s. Yeah,
3: it is so interesting because I've actually just finished work on, I've been doing the commentary for the other script. So for the the film about Spartacus that didn't end up getting made. And that one's based on the the Kursler, the Arthur Kursler novel The Gladiators, which is more what you would say is like a small Spartacus point of view. And that's kind of where Kubrick is supposed to have got his inspiration for a lot of the small Spartacus ideas from. And this is where people are saying, look, we're either fast or we're cursor. So like, make up your mind. But I think whenever I talk about it to my students, They actually prefer the small Spartacus version. As you say, like they prefer it now because they they see the grittier version of Spartacus, the darker version of Spartacus as being more realistic, I think.
0: I always find myself drawn to the small Spartacus.
2: This is your romance novel, like, deep
0: appreciation shining through here. I mean, I like a flawed hero. Like, that is my jam. (laughs) I know what you want. Totally authentic abs, flawed hero, epic romance
2: saga. I'm on this. Right. I'm obviously, like, a massive, large Spartacus overthrow of the system. That's, like, just, that appeals to me.
3: Interesting. Yeah, see, I I think I actually, I think as a story, I I can appreciate the large Spartacus. It's kind of, it's kind of the thing that Spartacus, as we said, the thing that's so appealing about him is that he's the underdog. So it makes sense to me that he's fighting for freedom, that he's fighting for these larger concepts, even though I know that realistically, it doesn't make as much sense as him fighting for like personal freedom.
0: Reluctantly. It's so interesting that your students are also drawn to the small Spartacus, though.
3: Yeah, I think it's because, as you say, that we're much more used to, I suppose, stories that involve an anti-hero now than we were back in the 1950s and the 1960s. But having having said that, Spartacus came out at a really interesting transition for the film industry as a whole, I feel. So it was kind of being released in 1960. It was one of the last big epics about the ancient world to actually be profitable. It's only in 1964 that we see the fall of the Roman Empire being made and that was, you know, The Fall of the Roman Empire on film, if you know what I mean. And it feels like Cleopatra. Was
2: that before or after um, the Pompeii one? What was the last something of Pompeii?
3: It's the last big Hollywood production that's made. I mean, basically, you have Cleopatra come out in 1963, which almost bankrupts 20th Century Fox. Things like The Longest Day and The Sound of Music kept it afloat. And then you have Fall of the Roman Empire in 1964, which, again, it's not that it was actually unsuccessful. It's not that it didn't generate money, but it just cost so much to make that it just couldn't really you know be profitable for the studios to continue and then you also are getting the collapse of the studio system as a whole and when that happens when the studios finally lose their grasp on power you get this period of filmmaking which is unlike anything I think we've ever seen because even now obviously the studio have reasserted powers it's more like companies I suppose rather than studios but there's much more corporate control now over filmmaking, but in the late '60s and early '70s, that's when you get films like like Cowboy, the Godfather movies. It's like this renegade era where you can get all these auteurs coming out and doing all sorts of interesting things that they could never have done ten or fifteen years earlier. And with Spartacus coming at kind of the beginning of that, and also being a symbol of that, I mean, Kirk Douglas, yeah, it was his, it was his own production company that was driving helping to drive that production, that he's, he's as much a part of this as anything. I think that he almost, I think that Spartacus could have found a place as an anti-hero in that time period. I mean, maybe it was a little ahead of the curve, but I can kind of see how both versions might have found resonance Ooh. with the 1960s audiences, but we'll never know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about Spartacus as a symbol. He obviously has an antagonist in the story. He's got many, but the most famous one is Crassus. Can we talk a little bit about why his story also comes through in
0: this way? Like, what does Crassus tell us about ourselves?
2: Well, yeah. I I mean, I think there's a lot to what does Crassus tell us about ourselves and why he's such a good villain? Because Spartacus in history goes up against quite a few people before Crassus and pretty much we just get like, they're all inept. And historically, there's a lot of reasons why the people before Crassus were actually had problems. And some of that has to do with like the reality that most of the seasoned Roman soldiers were all fighting in the Mithridatic Wars.
0: Pompey was out of town. That's the problem.
2: Pompey was out of town. They were all out of town fighting. And so the soldiers and the people who were left to be raised into the legions would have been either really inexperienced or they would have been retired. So we're not talking about the finest who are left. And so the proconsuls who get sent struggle from having to raise these legions quite quickly and also massively underestimating Spartacus. So in the history, what we see is that Crassus is like the first big person he comes up against. I mean, that's not true, but he is kind of the villain of the piece.
3: Crassus definitely has a a troubled history. <laughs> really the reason why he comes into the Spartacus story is because, uh, well, number one, he's there, as you said, he's not away like Pompey. <laughs> also he's insanely wealthy by this point in time, so he can afford to pay to raise troops like privately. He can afford to fund a campaign against Spartacus. I mean, he's an immensely complicated character in Roman history. I'm going to throw to Dr. G a little bit here because she also, I know, has come across him
1: (laughs) in her studies. It's a problem, really. I mean, Crassus, he tries so hard and all of his career is kind of bound up in the wealth as well. So the fact that this doesn't seem to have a lot of not enough currency Uh, with the Roman elite, because it's not really about being rich. It's really about the family lines. And he sort of really tries to push himself into politics in various ways. And this seems like maybe one of those kinds of moments as well, where it's like he's got the opportunity to push. Pompey doesn't really want him to push. Pompey's like, wait a minute, if Crassus is pushing, I'm running. I've got my troops. I'm coming. It's pretty clear that or at least relatively clear to me that this is part of the way in which the republic is starting to falter. Nobody's quite sure how it works. They've just lived through Sulla. And there's a lot of uncertainty about how does politics get done? And it opens up the way for somebody like Crassus to be like, well, why don't I just pay everybody to do what I want?
0: He's never quite seen as, you know, like the good guy here. Is he? Like, I kind of have not come across any sources that think he's great.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, the stories about his career don't really sort of lend for like, to a sense of respect for the guy.
3: He ends up in such a a bad way as well. I mean, I think when you see the movies and the TV series and that sort of thing about this period, Crassus comes across as being very well established in his career. He seems very preeminent. And it's not that he wasn't important, but he hasn't even hit the first triumvirate yet by the time he's facing off against Spartacus. So I, I think he was a bit earlier in his career than a lot of people might realize. But the end of his career is such a disaster for Rome, his disastrous campaign in Parthia, that um, if if anybody was going to like Crassus when they were writing about him in in Rome, I think that 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 sealed the deal.
0: (laughs) It's so interesting because now, based on this conversation, I'm starting to think because, yeah, Crassus was kind of a political outsider. You could say that he was also another underdog story.
3: In a way, yeah. I mean, as as Dr. G said, he he is actually trying to find a place for himself uh, in an age of Sulla's and Pompey's and eventually Caesar's. He's always, uh, I think, kind of kind of keep up with those guys. And it's not that he doesn't have. He does have military success. He does have money, and he will have uh, an impressive political career eventually. But yeah, he just unfortunately he doesn't get assassinated in you know a spectacular way like Caesar. He doesn't get killed in the civil wars like Pompey. He just gets gold poured down his throat.
0: The Parthian Theater Company.
3: (laughs) Yeah, he ends up being a prop in a play.
0: (laughs) It was just that, like watching the MGM movie, like the 1960s Spartacus movie. It seemed like he was in charge of the whole Senate somehow. He's older, he has control of the legions in Rome, which I guess was a thing in this movie that he gave to Glaberus, and Julius Caesar was like controlling the other half or something. And he seems to be frequently portrayed as like this kind of older Roman establishment figure, which is really something I didn't think about until just now.
3: Yeah, no, that, that was a bit of a, a plan on behalf of the filmmakers, I think. As, as fellow ancient history fangirls, you guys would know that there aren't that many films Made about Roman history in the Republic. So, as a result of that, most people are familiar with the Empire, not the Republic. And the Republic is so complicated in terms of all the different people that are involved. It's hard to get your head around. I mean, talking to you has maybe realize just how much I've forgotten already. Basically, I think they, they deliberately went for a bit of an Empire vibe with their version of the Republic.
0: Interesting. Can we just stop for
2: a minute and just talk about the oysters and snails?
3: Ah, I love talking about the oasis and
0: sales. Like, I just want someone to explain that to me. <laughs> right. That whole speech that Crassus gives about there's only one way to deal with Rome. You must grovel at her feet. It's
3: actually one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, So for those of you who haven't seen the movie, number one, what are you, crazy?
2: I know, go watch it. You may still be in quarantine.
3: (laughs) Number two, there is this scene between Crassus and his new body slave, who is played by Tony Curtis with a Brooklyn accent, as everybody knows. And so his body slave is washing him down, you know, attending to his needs. So, of course, they're both not wearing a lot. And he starts asking him about his likes and dislikes and what he thinks is moral and not moral. And then he starts bringing in this whole thing of do you like oysters or do you like
0: snails
3: and things like this?
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how he sounded. Too.
3: <laughs> it's meant to be a euphemism for do you like boys or do you like girls? And the point seems to be that it's not really a moral question that we're talking about here. It's merely a matter of taste and Crassus likes both.
0: So Crassus swings both ways is how we interpreted that too.
3: Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. There was actually a scene in an earlier script where his body slave Tony Curtis he actually runs away because of that because Crassus made a pass at him. Oh, isn't that what happens? It kind of is. It it, it was made a bit more explicit, I think, in earlier screen plays, but yeah, it it, it is kind of implied in in the movie. But um, anyway, that scene was cut out when Spartacus premiered. Like they they went through. 10 rounds with the censorship office because this was in the days where you still had to get the you know the censorship approval they basically they, they came back with all sorts of suggestions they were like what about artichokes and truffles <laughs> 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 the censors were still like how about no and i find it fascinating because when i teach my students about um you know gay and lesbian uh, history and we look at film i play them that scene and i'm like what is that about and they're like i have no idea <laughs> And yet it was considered to be so offensive that it was cut from the first edition of the film. And it was only restored much, much later. By the time they were restoring it, they only had the actual film. They'd lost the soundtrack. And so Tony Curtis was lucky, luckily enough, still alive. So he re-recorded his lines. But the the voice you hear speaking is actually uh, Anthony Hopkins impersonating Lawrence Olivier.
0: Oh, my gosh. I had no idea. That's fascinating.
3: Yeah. But it was basically the 1990s before that scene got back into the film.
0: And that was one of our favorite scenes. We did a, um, a whole Patreon episode about Jen and me just watching this movie and commenting on it, and we actually, like, reproduced the entire scene.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where when I was watching it, I was like, it's very obvious what they're talking about. And I just thought that is so forward for the time.
3: I mean, it's very much inspired by the Howard Fast novel. In the Howard Fast novel, Crassus is definitely swinging both ways. <laughs> he has quite a lengthy relationship that we hear about in the novel. I now feel like I need to go read this novel. <laughs> no, don't. It's a terrible novel. Okay. I'm sorry. Look, I know <laughs> some people like it, but no, it's terrible. It's terrible. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. It is really interesting. I, I, don't get me wrong. I didn't hate reading it when I was studying it because I was like, oh, my God, this is so fascinating. There are aspects to it that are interesting. But yeah, then you go, oh, my God. God, what is he talking about?
0: <laughs> and is this tied in? I remember um, there's something about how the Romans are portrayed in a lot of these adaptations. And I think I remember this being a line of discussion on your podcast. But if I'm remembering it wrong, forgive me about how like a lot of the time the Romans are said to like have sexual practices that at the time would have been considered, quote unquote, deviant. Yeah, and I
3: think I think that that's actually completely true for the way that America makes films about Rome in that period in that they, they also want to critique the other, whoever that other is, as being immoral in all the ways that Americans are great. Americans believe in the family and therefore they believe in you know having sex with, between a man and a wife and producing children and, and all that kind of thing, whereas the decadent Roman other they believe in nothing. <laughs> They'll have sex with anything. Sounds about right.
0: <laughs> Spartacus is very straight at all times.
2: I would say that that still carries through when you look at like the HBO production of Rome and even, even into the Stars production. Like that's the first time that you kind of see decent representation is that Stars production of Spartacus. Cause you see like how everyone lived across both the Rome and, and the slaves. And they all have a variety of sexualities and ways of life. Whereas usually you see like, I'm thinking again about Rome, the HBO version. You see the Roman upper class as being very, like, sexually promiscuous. But what, what you see in the Star series is it kind of depicts all kinds of relationships across both slaves and Romans. So like not one relationship is more moral than the or more right than the other. And I also liked that like there was no one normal sort of family relationship in the series. And then also you've got representations of different queer people across the spectrum that work.
1: Yeah, I think it was great to see like some like queer representation finally in the Star Spartacus and. Things hadn't really quite gone in that direction with Roman representations up until then. And so that was, I think, impressive to see. And it opens it up to like what is more like the ancient evidence. The spectrum of sexuality seems to be really quite open.
0: Well, the the negative sexual practices of the Romans, they definitely have that. You know, like Batiatis' gladiator school becomes known as the one where you can do all these crazy things with the gladiators. But I feel like the negative sexual representation thread there is about consent.
3: Yeah, and whilst whilst we don't have any evidence about what Spartacus got up to while he was in that gladiatorial school, there definitely are hints in the evidence that people did find gladiators sexy, and they wanted to they wanted to have sex with them, and and it seems like they did pay to have sex with gladiators. Uh, we don't know how often, but it, it, there's enough evidence there I think to suggest that it, it did happen. Maybe not quite as glamorously <laughs> as in the, the Star series.
0: Oh, that was the most glamorous, like, sex scene I've ever seen, that one with with the golden masks. It's kind of swoony.
3: Oh, look, the the Star series is definitely OTT, but you're right in that it isn't necessarily bound up in the same kind of... 1940s 1950s morality that Howard Fast who wrote the book and then the screenwriters who made the movie were necessarily caught up in as well
2: when Kirk Douglas's character in Spartacus just proclaims to be a virgin who has never like touched a woman before I was like I just I have to walk out of the room for a minute because it just this makes no sense I'm just like I get what you're trying to do here I get that he's this noble figure but I'm also like you are 40.
3: Well, this is where the backstory that they give him in that film, that they, they have to do that for it to make sense. But it also doesn't make sense because the Spartacus in their story has been working in the mines apparently his whole life.
2: Yeah, I was like, that w- that wouldn't happen. How long do people actually last working in the mines?
3: A year, a year. So that's where it doesn't make sense because, um, I mean, sure, he could be a 40-year-old who was sent to the mines and has been there for like six months, but it doesn't make sense for him to have been a slave like his whole life. But in order for that story to make sense, of course he's never come across a woman because he's been in the mines, but <laughs> that doesn't make sense. And that, that again comes from the Howard Fast novel, that different backstory to Spartacus, whereas the star's backstory is actually more in keeping with the, the source material, that he's you know, potentially a, a deserter from the Roman army.
0: Interesting. Jen, did we want to talk about Vestal Virgins? We
2: always want to talk about Vestal Virgins.
1: Vestal Virgins? I don't know. Where do we even start? I mean, I mean, this is a topic of my life, so.
2: Let's start at the beginning. So like, what exactly was the order? And how did you get chosen to be a part of it? Why was it so important to the Romans? And what did they do? Because one of my favorite details I came across that I did not know anything about is they had like their own personal bodyguards when they went out in the street.
0: There's so much about like women moving around in personal space that's tied up with the Vestal Virgins that I think is really interesting.
2: Yeah, well, it was one of those things when we were doing the Caligula arc and he gives his sisters the right to the Vestal Virgins to have their own private sort of bodyguards and this ability to move around in public space because they are not to be like touched or considered like on the market as Vestal Virgins.
3: Social distancing, it's social distancing.
2: (laughs) It's social distancing at sword point.
0: How dangerous was it for women to just walk around in the street in Rome? Was a bodyguard necessary to have freedom of movement as a woman?
1: It really depends, actually, I think. To start at the beginning, the Vessel Virgins, they are a group of six women. They're only ever six, never more, never less. Forget what you've heard in pop music. But they're chosen between the ages of six and ten. There's heaps of restrictions on that, as we talked about earlier. But if they get the go ahead and they're chosen, they have to serve for a minimum of 30 years. So, like, Best case scenario, you're chosen at 6 and you can leave at 36. By the time most of the women get to the point where they're able to leave, they are pretty much interested in staying on. So, you know, they're pretty used to the life by then. So that seems to be the thing that happens. And you can stay until you die, that's fine. But their day consists of, like, a few main tasks. One is they would have to have a rotational sort of watch on the flame um, that's burning in what is called the A days. It's Often referred to as a temple, but it's not quite a temple. A temple is built on consecrated ground, and the Aedes is not. We think that's because in this case the the building is so old and the site is so old. It was It's pre the idea of consecrating ground.
0: Is this one of the first buildings in the city of Rome, do you think?
1: It's pretty early on. Part of the trouble with like the archaeology is obviously if you go to the forum now, you'll see that there is a temple there. Um, So there an Aedes there. And we haven't gone down through all of the layers archaeologically. But they they do think it's there since about like the 7th century BCE. That's kind of the speculation.
0: Is that the very beginning of like the kingship period of Rome, I think? Yeah.
1: And that's the other thing is that the Vestals of Rome are not like the first Vestals. We tend to think of them as just being in Rome, but they're definitely not. There is pre-Rome Vestals and the mythological story... Oh yeah, she is a Vestal, isn't she? Yeah, one of them gives birth. The mythological story of Romulus and Remus. She's a Vestal and she can't be from Rome because that doesn't work. Rome doesn't exist yet.
0: Uh, The the mother of Romulus and Remus is a Vestal, right? Is that, am I remembering this right? Yeah,
1: so Rhea Silvia is related to the royal line of Alba Longa which is nearby, and she gets visited by Mars one day while she's uh, having a sunbake by the river, as you do. As you do. And Mars is pretty forceful. Of course. Yeah, so five out of five for uh, rape by God. She falls pregnant, obviously. It's twins. (laughs) She's a vestal, so she tries to hide the pregnancy. Her mother, however, has suspicions, and is like, "Um, I've noticed that uh, something has changed. Uh, She's like, Mom, it's nothing. (laughs) i'm a vestal just it's a
2: it's a burrito baby it's fine
1: yeah (laughs) it's tough you know i've got to watch this flame all the time just not getting enough exercise anyway so yeah there's there's that sense, and then we've got like the further, the more even ancient connection, which seems to be the connection to Hestia out of ancient Greece. And those things don't line up exactly, but there's a lot of good etymological linguistic reasons to suspect that they're interconnected. The idea of having a flame as being a central feature of civilization I think is part of where the Vestals come from and having a flame that is lit all the time kind of sort of preserves your civilized element of having access to fire because if anybody's own fire goes out there's a communal place where it's always supposed to be lit.
0: Oh see that's a really cool connection because that goes all the way back to like really far back.
1: Prometheus!
0: Yeah. This idea of like fire as being this life-giving thing. And yeah, I would imagine before the time that people knew how to light a fire, which who knows how long ago that was, you would have needed to have these communal fires, right? Like before Flint and Tinder and like fire lighting technologies. How did ancient Romans light fires? I don't know that
1: they used uh, mirrors amongst other things.
0: Really? Wow.
1: There's a whole like level of technological advancement that you have to have in place to be able to do that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like an insurance policy to have a fire that's going all the time that anybody can go to if they need to.
0: Yeah, because it's such like a mundane detail of daily life. You need fire to see at night, you need fire to cook. I mean, lighting fires with a mirror is not fast or easy or convenient, I would imagine, right? Or is it?
2: And also if you trace it all the way back to the Prometheus connection, it's like fire is like how kind of like they stayed civilized. And in order to get this gift, like someone had to give up quite a lot. So you can see like how if they're believing this sort of worship of their gods, how important it is not to let it go out because it might not come back.
1: Yeah, and I think of, like, geography and, like, weather patterns of, like, the Mediterranean. And it's like, Italy is in a better position than, say, Germany to have a fire going all the time. Like, how do you start a fire when it's damp? I don't know. Uh, but the Italians, they've got a better chance. You know, they have nice summers. So once you've got a fire, make sure it doesn't
0: go out. Have some women there to tend it at all times.
1: Yes. And, you know, make sure that they never, ever do anything else with their time. Heaven for fen they get distracted.
0: By families or boyfriends or husbands.
1: Yeah, boys. Boys are the worst.
0: Oh, they are. Take you away from your fire. Yeah, exactly. This is why I'm single. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, you could put yourself forward. You could volunteer. Um, I hear it's very soothing.
0: Yeah, it's warm. I think
1: there's something really appealing.
0: Sex frequently results in childbirth and a lot of women died in childbirth. I mean, this is a safer bet.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, you know, I see that. That looks dangerous. Um, Yeah, I
3: see
2: that and raise no.
3: (laughs) I still think I would have opted to be a Vessel version if I had the choice. I like the single lady aspect of it.
1: (laughs) This is one of the things that fascinates me about Vessels is that they don't get to choose. That's the thing. It's like if it was women entering of their own volition after they hit puberty and they knew that they weren't that interested or they were like, you know what, I'm asexual, it's fine. I think that would be a vocational and interesting choice, but they're not. They're they're just regular kids, taken from their families under a religious agreement, and then they go into this rigorous training. And I think this leads to a whole bunch of interesting tensions for the individuals that would serve as festal priestesses.
0: Yeah, because a lot of them broke the vows, right? And had sex. Well,
1: I mean, most of them didn't. I mean, this is the thing. We only get to hear about them in the source material when they do something naughty.
0: Those naughty, naughty Vestals. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Dr.
3: Jane, I can attest that that is few and far between. It seems like ages since we've spoken about a Vestal.
1: Yeah, they, they don't come up that often. Looking at the data, it's like maybe once in a generation is about the average, but that's taking into account that we get clusters of women being accused of incestum being unchaste at the same time, then all getting executed.
0: Is there a pattern to that?
1: Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. If things aren't going well for Rome, like really badly, they do often look around going, but what did we do? What's, what did we do wrong? I know. It must have been the Vestals.
0: <laughs> the Vestals must be unchaste and displeasing the gods. Well, you know what that reminded me of was we looked into ancient world poisoning and some of the earliest mentions of poisoning incidents in ancient Rome, I think maybe from the 500s BC, it's been a while since we did that episode were instances where there would be like a plague and women would be rounded up and accused of poisoning people and then you know either executed or jailed or like punished in some way. It does seem like there's a threat in these communities of finding women to blame when they feel out of control or when things go wrong. Yeah,
1: certainly um, having good scapegoats definitely makes things easier when you're a patriarchal society to place it on a minority or a less powerful group. They're certainly not the only ones that suffer, but certainly there seems to be some good arguments made for like when things are going politically badly in Rome, particularly with their foreign affairs, that the relationship that the Romans have with the God is called into question. So this is where I think... Maybe we haven't done enough work as historians to fully engage with the idea that the Romans were, at their essence, hugely spiritual people. Everything about what they do seems to be bound up in their relationship with the gods. And this Pax Deorum, the peace of the gods, is this idea that they have this balanced relationship with with the divinities at all times. And any time that seems to be out of sync, it's time to look around at the various priesthoods and find out what has gone wrong. And the Vestals come up for things all the time because they're involved in everything. And this is something that tends to be both known but also overlooked as, like, one, they have to watch that flame all the time. It's a problem if the flame goes out, but most of the time it doesn't. Um, but that's an issue. So they're constantly vigilant. But they also are in charge of creating the sacred salt, this molar salsa that gets sprinkled at every animal sacrifice that happens, regardless of which priesthoods are involved. So if something hasn't been put together properly, that also comes back to them and... Yeah, it's a it's a really sort of like a curiously tense position to hold because um, you're always occupying this dangerous place between what seems to be the mortal realm and the relationship with the gods, which could be called into question at any time.
2: It's a lot of pressure.
1: Yeah, a little bit, yeah
2: yeah it's not a fun orgy priesthood or one where you run through the streets like the
1: Lupercalia one but it's also like it's not like the priesthood of like Kyberly and Attis where you have to castrate yourself so I mean ups and downs (laughs) you don't have to cut anything off this is a win congratulations you're a Vestal. you get to keep your genitals you can't use them but
0: you do get to keep them (laughs)
1: whatever you do don't use them stop that do not
0: use the genitals
1: (laughs) bad <laughs> but to get back to your point about like the the bodyguards we know that they get offered a lictor so a guy with a big stick to follow them around and this happens in like the late republic so it's like it's a long time before they get them so for a long time they're allowed to wander around by themselves and it's supposed to be okay by and large and the reason why generally we think it's Okay, for them to do that is because they're also distinguished by the way that they dress. So the Romans are all about what you're wearing. You've got to pick the right thing to wear in public, otherwise nobody knows what social station you belong to. Which is why going to the public baths is such a dangerous thing to do because you've got to take off your clothes, and everyone's like, "Who even are you right now?" You should have upper class tattooed on your ass. <laughs>
2: Well, you couldn't have any tattoos. That would definitely not be okay. (laughs) Right. Tattoos are bad.
1: Not cool. Yeah. So the vestals look different from everybody else as well. This is one of their distinguishing features. What did they wear? So they've got like a bit of a headdress that goes on, uh, which is supposed to be in particular colors. There's a few different layers to it. And their hairdo is supposed to be in the bridal style even though they're not getting married but the other clothes that they wear sort of reflect a more worldly matronal aspect so they've got this combination of things going on which makes them look a bit like a bride a bit like a matrona but it's distinct as well and because there's only six of them you're supposed to recognize them there's only a few places that they're gonna be they're either going to be hanging out at the temple the house next door or they're going to be wandering down to the local fountain to collect some water or at a sacrifice I was like, you can pinpoint where they're going to be according to the calendar. So I was like, you're just supposed to leave them alone. And it's the moment that one of them gets accosted on her way home from a dinner party where they realize that they need to have bodyguards all of a sudden. They're like, some knave in the middle of the night has decided that this this woman is okay to accost. And it's like, you definitely cannot. Dad boy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Back off. So they only had one bodyguard each or was it more than one? This one. In general, how difficult, if this is known, would it have been for women in general? I mean, I guess that this would be a class question, too, but for women in general to walk around Rome by themselves.
3: It's kind of a matter of which area of Rome you're in and at what time of day. I mean, nighttime, in an era before reliable street lighting, nighttime, I think, is always going to be a bit scary to just sort of wander around by yourself. And I
1: wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Unless it's under Nero and the, you know, the Christians have been lit up. Nero is a good example. Sorry, just because Nero himself apparently
3: used to dress up and then go out at night with his gang of thugs, you know, his brews, and just, you know, get on the town, which means drinking and beating up strangers and If that's what the emperor thinks is fun to do, I don't know if I would be out and about at night if I had to be.
0: Are you allowed to fight back if it's Nero beating you up?
3: That's apparently what happens in that people will start to realize, oh, this is the emperor. And so they kind of can't fight back. It's really awkward because they're like, ow, ow, oh, I can't, must resist.
0: Ow, ow. If he's not good at beating you up, you have to pretend like it's the worst beatdown you've ever gotten. (laughs) (laughs)
3: But having said that, obviously, for a lot of people who aren't upper class, life is lived in the streets because your home is ridiculously small, probably depressing. And so you're going to be... Going to the toilet, going to the bath, eating—everything that you need to do is kind of outside of your home.
0: Your toilet would be outside.
3: Yeah, I mean, like a proper, a proper toilet. Yeah, like you might—I guess you might have like a bowl or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Chamber pot, if you will.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah.
2: For people who don't know about Vestal Virgins or Spartacus, is there any particular sources or things they could look at?
1: Obviously, it would be remiss if I didn't suggest you go and watch my TED Ed video.
2: Absolutely. We will put it in the show notes.
1: (laughs) There's lots of books that I find really interesting about this topic. They're all pretty academic, so I don't know if they're going to be good recommendations, but I'll make them anyway. There is a pretty accessible... 2008 book by Robin Lausch Wordfang called Rome's Vessel Virgins and it sets out a whole bunch of stuff to do with them. I wouldn't say for any of the scholars I'm about to cite that I agree with everything that they say but there's certainly lots of things that you can take away from that particular book and also the more recent monograph by Delusio because which is called A Place at the Altar. And that's exploring some things to do with festivals, but things to do with women in general. So one of the things that's happened in Roman history over the last sort of 30 years is this gradual realization that women actually did stuff.
2: Shocker. That doesn't sound right. I know.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, there's some pretty pervasive elements of the scholarship which suggest that women did nothing. Having scholars come through slowly but surely from like sort of like the 80s onwards, and it's getting better all the time rigorously re-examining the evidence that we have for how women actually did participate in the public life and particularly the spiritual religious side of things and i'd say that like anybody's best friend to get into this kind of stuff is the source book women's life in greece and rome by lefkowitz and fant which is All the sources are in translation, so it's like a great sort of like, it's pitched at undergraduates, but like everybody loves it. And that's kind of like a great starting point for doing extra readings and getting into things and stuff. So
0: this is also totally self-serving because these are places we will probably turn to when we start tackling these topics ourselves. So Thank you. <laughs>
1: this is what I figured. So I was like, I was like, I'll help you guys out. I'm like, these are things that I think are good. <laughs> it is always one of those
0: things
2: where we try to be like really good about our sources because when, whenever we go to research these topics, because we're not academics and we're not doing this research for class, we're doing it just for the love of it. There have been many times where I've been in a library or on Amazon and like, I don't know if I need this book or not. Like, I guess I'm just going to try it. So I always like try to go and see what other people are recommending.
1: And also the topic is vast for just about all of these things it's like it's massive so you're like oh, how do I whittle it down to something and will it even be suitable for what I want to say so it's like I hear you
2: <laughs> a few times I've like seen a few things and I've been like oh I want to read this and it's like you need to have academic access to read this and I was like oh that's sad
0: that's the thing we don't have we don't have access to academic libraries so we're kind of stuck with you know whatever we can scrounge up in sort of the public record I suppose you could say
1: yeah and I think this is like a huge issue that I think universities in particular face because access to this kind of information, like they talk about how will people identify fake news or it's like, You know, how are people going to figure out like what's true and what's not? Why aren't people listening to the experts? And it's like people are hungry to become experts for themselves. And the barriers that you face trying to become an expert in in anything is incredibly frustrating. I think this is something that the Academy has to address on a broader level. And it would improve everything for everybody. And it's like, just imagine if you could just read the things you you needed to read. That should not be hard.
0: It would help us a lot.
3: I think think that's actually one of the challenges that we constantly face and that we know other podcasters must be facing when you have a full-time job and a life trying to do the research, like do really good research in a timely manner so that you can turn out episodes at a a reasonable click It's massively challenging. And having open access to information, I mean, if people want good podcasts to be out there, then people need to be able to access information of all kinds, not just the popular histories, but people should have access to academic material. Um, It should be open access. And that's obviously uh, an issue that I can only imagine a lot of people come up against. We've been pretty lucky in terms of what we have access to. Um, but again, it's kind of only through having contacts that has allowed us to have access to academic material. Otherwise, we'd be paying a fortune for it. Do you have anything else, Jenny?
0: Um, yeah, Spartacus sources.
3: Yes. Look, um, if you are interested in learning more about Spartacus and you want to go back to the ancient sources, luckily a lot of them are actually online and free to access. Yeah, you because know, Plutarch isn't worried about his copyright. In terms of uh, what you might want to look at, apart from that, there are actually quite a few popular biographies of Spartacus out there that you can access. There's one by Barry Strauss, which is pretty readable. And then there's also a really great collection of sources and some, some interpretation in a, a, little, like a little volume called Spartacus and the Slave Wars, I'm pretty sure, by Brent Shaw, which is really good. If you're interested in the film, then I would definitely recommend um, checking out anything by uh, Duncan Cooper, Larry Suppler, Henry McAdam. Um, They've got some good stuff out there. And there's a fantastic volume edited by Martin Winkler, which is definitely worth checking out if you're interested in Spartacus and popular culture.
0: And of course, my TEDx video. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, we're putting that in the show notes.
2: (laughs) Yes. I guess the only thing that we have yet to cover is potentially we'll be releasing this during a worldwide lockdown. We're not sure.
0: We don't know if we'll be in lockdown because time is a flat circle and we don't know about the future. <laughs> we
2: just don't know. So in addition to these awesome sources, is there anything else, any favorite books, TV programs, anything else that you'd recommend people be binge watching or reading?
3: Um, I definitely, in the ancient history world, I really enjoyed reading Emma Southam's biography of Agrippina. Um, I found that very enjoyable. But I actually, I must admit, I'm getting into a bit of modern history at the moment because I I kind of teach both. And so I've been reading um, How to Be a Dictator, which I found really interesting. And I think the thing that I'm finding interesting at the moment is that I'm teaching about dictators in the 20th century at the same time that I'm teaching the Julia-Claudian period.
0: Oh, that's great synergy right there.
3: I'm just seeing so many connections. So I definitely recommend reading How to Be a Dictator. It's really fascinating. And I am binge watching Babylon Berlin at the moment.
0: Ooh, what's what's that about?
3: Babylon Berlin is basically all about Germany post-World War One. It's a German series, so it is subtitled, but it is absolutely fascinating it's got a great plot it's kind of like a detective story but it's set against the backdrop obviously of all the political chaos of the weimar days you get to see the rise of uh, of the nazis in the background it's just it's just amazing it's a great series
0: that sounds fascinating i'm definitely down to look at other things to binge watch i was thinking about binging the stars spartacus for like the 19th time
3: That is great. Yeah, that is great. But yeah, if if you're looking for something a bit different, um, Babylon Berlin is just, I mean, the way that they've done it, they've just executed it so well in terms of the costuming, the feel of the period. It's just
1: amazing.
0: That's awesome. Dr. G, what about you?
1: Mm, That's a good question, because I feel like I'm having a real trouble reading novels at the moment because I'm anxious all the time. But having said that, if people do want to read novels, because maybe they're not feeling like I am. I'm keeping with a bit of a Rome theme, but we will delve into fantasy, don't you worry. I really enjoyed Colleen McCulloch's Masters of Rome series. Some people really didn't like it. There seems to be a real divided opinion. I started reading it while I was doing research and I had to stop because I was having trouble keeping in my mind separate the ancient source material and whatever was happening in that novel series. But I I found it really readable and enjoyable. I think part of what I'm going to be revisiting whilst in quarantine will be HBO's Rome. I still want it to be finished. It's not finished. Come on. I know. And it will never be finished, it will never be finished.
0: Jen and I are also massive fans of that show.
1: Yeah, and then the set is pretty much burnt down now as well, so there's just no way it's going to happen. Having said that, things that I would definitely recommend if you're interested in sci-fi and you haven't done it already. I would watch Battlestar Galactica. So it's like I'm going way back in time. Like, revisit some classics, people.
0: You are revisiting some classics right there.
1: (laughs) Revisiting some classics. I feel like this is the time for like revisiting old friends. And if you want to go even further back in time and you want the like the absolute comfort of like regular episodes and clear story arcs and everything being neat and tidy, which I feel like might be comfortable right now. Stargate, really. You know, it's all wrapped up in 40 minutes. Everybody has a great time. Nobody ever dies. And even when they do, they come back. That's what Gilmore Girls is for for me. Yeah, yeah. Like that kind of like late 90s early 2000s like really satisfying it's so predictable it's so unreal television where the storylines are neither deep but everything's like everybody's your friend and you're like oh it's so comforting though it's so comforting <laughs> and i would say like for reading purposes the thing that i've really enjoyed recently and i'm just on the cusp of finishing and i think everybody should read is mona elsa latest book the seven necessary sins for women and girls that sounds like a book by Agrippina. <laughs> it is good stuff. She is an anarchist feminist and I am loving every moment of it.
0: <laughs> I'm going to have to look this up. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on our show. This has been amazing. Thank you. <laughs>
1: thank you so much for having us. Oh, thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure to sit down and chat with the ladies from Ancient History Fangirl. Dr. Rad and I are super honoured to have been guests on the show um, and if you're interested in learning more about ancient Rome which is basically our niche you're welcome to listen to the partial historians we can be found anywhere literally anywhere on the internet at this point in time
0: awesome thank you so much thank you so much <laughs>